our scripture reading today is from Luke 2, verse, uh, 1 to 20, the birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloth, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. And suddenly there, were, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace amongst those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered, um, wondered at what the shepherd told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> Thanks be to God, indeed. Uh, nothing better than kids singing, isn't it? Great. Well, again, happy fourth Sunday of Advent. Uh, we're nearly there. Christmas is uh, just around the corner. Um, and again, um, Christmas Day is all what it's what Advent is, is about. It's about it's Christmas. Advent is those four Sundays, the, the four weeks leading up to Christmas Day. It's it's just a season of waiting, of hoping in our darkness, of and of anticipating uh, the the arrival of the Savior of the world, uh, the one who will bring mercy and light to his people who are sitting in darkness. Um, as we've been making our way through that waiting period of Advent, um, we've been just going through those first uh, two chapters of Luke. Um, and we've just been kind of tracing that story that most of us have heard so many times before, but just trying to have kind of fresh ears. Um, so far, we've seen the story has involved two families who are just kind of divinely linked somehow. Um, you have Zachariah and Elizabeth, 
Zechariah is this righteous priest. Uh, he works in the temple. Uh, he has a really important job. Um, we're told that him and his wife are old. They don't have any children because uh, Elizabeth is barren. But uh, an angel comes and, and promises them a son that is going to be born. Uh, they're going to call him John. Uh, and this son is going to actually prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. This, this second child, this more important child, who's going to be born to this second couple, Mary and Joseph. Um, Mary and Joseph are, are quite different from uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They have some similarities, but uh, some differences. Mary is young. Um, she's, she's probably barely a teenager. Um, if Elizabeth is well past her years of childbearing, Mary has just barely begun hers. She's a virgin. Um, both, both of these women are like medically very unlikely to have children, uh, but for two drastically different reasons. Um, and in both of these stories, you see God intervening in these families' lives. Um, he sends this heavenly messenger, Gabriel, uh, to, to, to deliver both of these families some incredible news. Um, and God's message to both of these couples is essentially, my glory is coming down to you. My glory is coming down from you. Glory from on high is coming down to you. He says, God is, is showing you mercy, Gabriel says. He, he has found uh, favor with you. He has heard your cry, and now he is responding by drawing near to you. My glory is coming down to you. The impossible is becoming possible. That's really what the story of the Bible is all about. It's the, the story of the Bible is, is you, we find humanity in a desperate, dire situation, a very low uh, uh, situation. Because of our sinful actions, we have driven this wedge between us and God. Uh, but the message of the Bible is that, that although we are in a desperate situation, God in His love acts. God in His love and in His mercy, He comes to us to save us. God's glory comes down to us. Um, the, the story of the Bible, it's a salvation story. Um, it, it's about God in, in the highest showing mercy to those who are low, to those who have actually sinned against Him, His enemies. It's, it's, it's the story of, of God in His mercy and in His love, His glory descending on the lowest. Deep down, don't we? Each of us know that that describes our situation talked about that last week, if you, if you weren't here, this, this feeling that each of us know deep down into our bones that this is not the way it's meant to be, that, that something is, is not right. This world is, is desperately broken. Um, each of us know that personally and communally, and that's really the, back, the backdrop of Luke chapter 1 and 2, that this isn't the way it's meant to be. We are in a desperate, dire situation, but the good news message of the Bible is that God has a rescue plan, that, that He actually has a plan to, to save His people in their darkness, in their suffering. God has, has this, this everlasting love for His people, even though we don't love Him in return, even though we actually turn our backs on Him, He has this, this love for His people. He has this heart that is broken for his people. He, he actually agrees with our cries that this is not the way it's meant to be. And he has this plan to reverse that situation, to actually come and, and make things the way they are meant to be. Um, and his plan, we see, is accomplished by his glory coming down to us. That's what Advent is all about. It's, it's waiting in our darkness waiting in our suffering, waiting for God's glory to descend. 
Not just God's glory, but the source of God's glory, God himself coming down to save us. Um, that, that's what Zachariah's song was all about in, in, in chapter 1. Praise God for his salvation plan. Praise, praise God that he has come to visit his people. He, he is raising up this strong horn, this, this, this mighty one out of the house of David who will actually come and redeem his people. Who, who will save us from our enemies, who will forgive our sins because of the tender mercy of God. Zechariah talks about the sunrise that will visit us from on high. This is the glory descending. This, this sunrise who, who will come, this mighty one who will come and, and guide our way into the path of peace. That's what, that's what Mary and Joseph, that's what uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and the rest of God's people were, were, have been waiting on for thousands of years at this point. And here in chapter 2, that moment finally arrives. Here in chapter 2, we see God's glory descends. That, that, that Messiah that was promised so long ago to their, to their forefathers, he's finally come and he's visited his people. This child who Isaiah says will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God in the flesh, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, he's finally come. And yet, the word glory it might be the very last word we'd use to describe his arrival, isn't it? Like, what's glorious about this, the scene of this birth? Like, all the sentimentality that we, that we tend to, like, pack into Christmas, that doesn't come from this part of the Bible. There's, there's, there's no tree, there's no turkey dinner, there's, there's no family gathered around a, a, a fire very happily. There's, there's actually nothing sentimental about the story of this birth. Um, I mentioned last week that we can, we can tend to have two quite opposite experiences of, of Christmas time, can't we? Um, and I think you can actually experience these things at the same time, but, but for some people it can be the, the happiest season of all, but for some people it's, it's the hardest time of the year. Christmas time can, can actually highlight our, our sadness, our sorrows. For, for a lot of people, it's actually the loneliest time of the year. It's two quite extreme uh, experiences of, of Christmas time. Um, and really, when you read Luke's narrative of Christ's birth, it's that second group of people who should be able to relate most to the story, isn't it? Because this story, it actually involves loneliness and poverty it involves, it's people's lives being disrupted. There, there's isolation, there's, there's rejection. People are being separated from their families. They're separated from their communities. Money and resources are limited. Anyone feel that this time of year? So when you look at the first Christmas, you don't see this picture-perfect situation. You actually see an extremely difficult situation. You actually see things are not the way they're meant to be. So if you feel that way at all this time of year, here's the good news story of the Bible is that God didn't remain far off. God, God actually draws near to us in our difficulties. God actually enters into our sadness. He enters into our darkness, into our poverty, into our loneliness. God actually condescended from on high to meet us in our impossible situations. That's the very center of the message of, of Christmas, isn't it? That, that God becomes one of us. 
Like the eternal, perfect, forever God of the universe, the one who doesn't have a beginning that has no end, he actually comes and he, he puts on flesh and he becomes this lowly baby born into poverty, born into a desperate situation. That's why one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. That's probably my, one of my most special of God's, of Jesus' names. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the very heart of the Christmas message, that, that God actually sees people in their desperate situation. He sees us crying out in our mercy, and He doesn't just stay far off and send help. He doesn't just send some angels to help us. No, He actually comes Himself and visits us. He, he actually enters into our desperate situation so that we can know Him, so that we can be known by Him, so we can actually experience Him and know Him and, and be known by Him. That's what I kind of want to focus on this morning, this, this idea that this, this long-awaited, strong, glorious Savior and Lord finally comes, but I want us to see the, the humility that He comes with, that, that God actually stoops low. As Paul says in Philippians 2, He actually condescends to us. He, he, he empties Himself. He humbles himself. He enters into our story so that we might know him and be known by him. Um, there's a lot of things we can take from these 20 verses. I'm just, you know, I'm just tempted to like give you everything that I learned this week, but that, that, that's not what I want to do. I just want us to, to really focus in on the, the humbleness of God. Here's the thesis really of, 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 that I'm going to kind of wrap up here is, is Jesus becomes lowly to be with the lonely. At Christmas, Jesus becomes lowly to be with the lonely. Um, let's consider those two things, lowliness and loneliness. Um, we'll look at that in His birth and in His life, and then just at the end, we'll, we'll, we'll just consider what that means for us. Why is that important for, for you and me? Um, this arrival of this glorious Savior, the first thing we notice is just how unglorious His birth is. In those first seven verses, we see the lowliness of this birth. Um, we don't have time to pull out every detail here, but notice in verse 4, he was born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was, it was really as small and as insignificant of a village as you could get. Um, the, the, it was a village of, of little consequence. Um, it, it was a pass-through village. Like, you, you, there's no reason to go to, to Bethlehem. Um, no one actually visited Bethlehem. You'd, you'd pass through it onto somewhere better, somewhere more important. Um, it's really the, the, the least um, appropriate of places for the, the Savior of the world to be born. He deserved to be born in Rome, in a palace. He deserved to be born in, maybe in Jerusalem, but He was born in Bethlehem. When God chooses to enter the world, He chose Bethlehem as His birthplace. So here at the very start, He's saying, I'm going to identify with people who are nobodies. I'm going to identify with, with people who are forgotten, that are passed over. In verse 7, we see after traveling from Nazareth up to Bethlehem, it's about 70 miles, um, to be registered for this census. Uh, it seems the village is, is crowded. There's no place for them to, to stay. Um, in my studies, I learned that that word in, um, there's no room at the inn. Um, it's, it's kind of tricky to translate. It's actually in, in later in Luke chapter 22 and in Mark 14, it's translated as guest room 
or, or spare room. It's, it's, it's sometimes translated as inn, but, but not as much as it is spare room or guest room. Um, I hate, like that was a cute uh, video, but, and I hate to spoil it, but there's no mention of an innkeeper. There's no innkeeper saying, sorry, there's no room for you here. Um, some scholars actually suggest that it's possible that the reason Joseph was returning to Bethlehem was because he had property there. Uh, maybe he had a home that relatives were staying in. Um, if that's true, it actually makes the scene even harsher, doesn't it? Because it's not just some stranger innkeeper turning them away. It's, it's relatives. It's, a, it's, a, it's family denying them a place to stay. But whatever the case, there's no place for them to stay. So they end up staying with the animals. A common house in Bethlehem at the time um, maybe had two stories. The, the, the second story had a living area, and the bottom floor is, was for animals. It was a, kind of a, a stable, a, a barn. Um, if it's a single floor, there's a stable next to it. Or it's even common to have like a cave area uh, for the animals. And, and it's, it's with the animals that Mary and Joseph end up staying. And in verse 7, you see Mary gave birth to her son, and laid him in a manger. And a manger is, it's an animal trough. Um, I don't know, if, I know some people in our, uh, our family uh, grew up on a farm. Uh, my Uncle Sam was a dairy farmer, and this is a filthy scene. Um, feeding troughs are stinking. Like, the, no one, no, you wouldn't lie your newborn baby in a, in a feeding trough. It's, it's not an ideal place for a newborn. Um, in case you're thinking, maybe, maybe we're losing something in context here, um, this wasn't normal. And, and we, we see this is so unusual that in verse 12, the only instructions the, that the angels give the shepherds when they're to go look for this child is they say, go look for the one who's lying in a feeding trough. That, like there was probably, presumably, other babies in Bethlehem that night, but, but who is Jesus, this Savior? He's the only one lying in, an, in a feeding trough. Do you see the, the lowliness of this birth? Like he deserves to be born in a palace. He deserves all the pomp and all the prestige. He deserves for, for his birth to be heralded to and celebrated by the entire world. And yet he's born in the corner of nowhere. At this point, the rest of the world doesn't know. He's lying in a feeding trough amongst the animals. The lowliness of the birth of Christ, it's so important for us to grasp. Um, what about the loneliness? Look at verse 7 again. Um, verse 6 says it's time for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Um, my wife Jenny and I, we've had three children. Um, I was at each of their births, and, and here's what happens is the baby comes along, and immediately what they do is they kind of plop them on their mother. Um, they're, it's pretty gross, <laughs> like they're, they're slimy, but it's this like special connection moment. Um, and then every single time what happens is the midwife takes the baby over to a little cart and cleans them up and then wraps the baby up and then brings the baby back to, to us. Um, that's the same practice uh, that in, in their day, and yet notice here that Mary does it all. Mary gave birth, and then she wraps this child up, lays him in a manger. Why? She's alone. There's, 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 she's far from home. There's no midwife here. There's no doctors. There's no nurses. 
There's no family. She's in isolation. She's away from her community. Maybe she just wants her mom there. It's just her and Joseph and the animals. Imagine the loneliness of giving birth in this way. Imagine the fear of giving birth in this way, just, just in a stable. Um, again, all three of my births, terrifying, absolutely terrifying. And, but the comforting thing for me is that I'm not the one in charge. I'm just like a bystander. I'm just kind of in the way, just hopefully uh, tell me where to stand and I'll be there. there there's, there's medical professionals that are there that are in charge. Doctors are there, midwives are there, nurses are there. That's such a comfort for all the dads in the room. So think how scary and how lonely this birth must have been. They were all alone, all alone, and yet Mary's holding in her arms the creator of the, of the universe. Isn't that amazing? That, that song that we've been singing, the maker of Mary, now Mary's son. This is, this is God Almighty. This is the one who, who spoke creation into being. He's now in flesh. He's, he's now a baby. How, how, how glorious that moment must have been for Mary. It's a special thing when mothers hold their firstborn child, but this is God in flesh. It must have been so special. And yet, it must have been so lonely, so scary. But that's the world that God chose to come into. That's the setting that he chose for his glorious arrival. Notice in verse 8, we see eventually there would be some visitors, but um, probably not the first visitors that Mary expected, or if we're honest, probably even wanted. Um, the, the moms in the room will know that birth is is exhausting. It's special when your family come and see the baby for the first time, but the last thing you want are strangers barging in to visit you. But that's what happens. He's not just any strangers, but, but shepherds. If you could describe shepherds with any word, it would probably be overlooked. Um, shepherds were themselves this, this lonely community. They were at the margins of society and not necessarily maybe as despised as, a, as we always try to make them out to be, but they're certainly always overlooked. They, they, they just weren't that important. When it comes to prestige and power and privilege, shepherds were definitely at the bottom of that list. So imagine that, that scene that night. It's just a normal night. They're on the night shift. Some of them are napping. Some of them are, are watching the fields. And, and suddenly an angel appears amongst them. It says in verse 9, an angel appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Here is his glory descending. The glory of the Lord lights up that dark field as the shepherds were, were on watch. And quite understandably, they're, they're terrified. That's what always happens. When you have a, a theophany in the Bible, this, this manifestation of God's presence, it's often accompanied by this Shekinah glory, this glory that shines and just terrifies everyone. It's, it's hard to be in the presence, and that's what happens here. The Lord lights up that dark, and they are filled with great fear. But in verse 10, the angel says what they always say, don't be afraid. And here's the reason he says not to be afraid. I give you good news of great joy. And look at what the angel says this good news of great joy is. This, this joyful gospel, he says, for unto you this day 
is born a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the only time those three glorious titles of Jesus are, are used at the same time. The angel says, this is, this is the Savior. This is the one who has come to redeem you, who has come to, to, to save you, this strong one. This is the one you've been waiting for. He is Christ. That means he's the Messiah. He's the anointed one. This is the one, the, the long-awaited Messiah that was promised so long ago. He's here. And lastly, he says he is Lord. Maybe the most glorious of the three. He's saying this is God in the flesh. This is the Lord of the universe that has been born today. And he says, he's been born unto you. This good news of great joy is for you, he says. He's making it personal. This mighty child is born unto you. Do you remember what Mary's song was about in chapter 1? Mary was, was magnifying the Lord. Why? Because the Lord has exalted the lowly. The Lord has, has lifted up those of humble estate. So here we are moments after the Savior was born, and He's already doing it. Like He's already enacting that, that promise. He is lifting up the lowly. This is the king of the universe that has been born. He's come. He's finally arrived. And the angel says, you lowly, overlooked, forgotten shepherds get to be the first to know about it. Do you want to come visit him? Do you want to come meet him? And then this, this heavenly choir appears, and they give what must have been the most stunning performance ever performed on earth. Think about it. This, this legion of angels singing with their heavenly voices. Glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, this is the, the, this heavenly song. It's not performed before Caesar. It's not performed for Herod the Great. It's not performed in, in the temple in Jerusalem, the place where God's presence was meant to be. It's, it's just for these lowly shepherds. It's just for them in this field that night. And then they, the angels go back to heaven. It must have been this moment, this silence again, darkness again. And they're like, what just happened? Did you hear what they just said? And it says then they, they made their way straight to see Jesus. They, they, they went with haste, it says. I think they were probably running to find this child who was laying in this feeding trough. What a scene. They're this, this lowly, lonely community and their loneliness was interrupted by the presence of God in human form. Do you see the, the humbleness of Jesus' birth? Do you see the, the humility that he came with? He became lowly to be with the lonely. This is really his birth. Just, it just foreshadows uh, what we'll see as we make our way through the rest of Luke's gospel in the new year. It just, it just foreshadows that Jesus' whole life will be lowly and lonely. That the way Jesus' life began is the way it will continue, this life of humility. No one was, had more humility than Jesus. What is humility? The, I looked it up. The Oxford Dictionary gave this definition of, of humility. It's the, it's the quality of having a modest or low view of one's importance. I think that's a bad definition of humility because when you look at 
the life of Jesus, what you see from his example is humility, it actually consists of knowing who you are and being comfortable in your own skin. Humility is, is knowing who you are. I'd add even in Jesus' case, knowing whose you are and being comfortable in your own skin. And yet, because you're so comfortable with, the, with that identity, you have this propensity towards self-giving. Real humility is a clear-eyed self-awareness that's coupled with this propensity to, to self-give, to, to serve others. That, that was Jesus. Jesus was so confident in his identity as the one with whom the Father is well-pleased. And he was so confident in, in who he was that he was then just free to pour his life out to others, wasn't he? You see that all through the Gospels. Je Jesus, he just found other people interesting. Jesus just had time for people. He always had time for people, especially the downcast, the marginalized, the, the, the poor, the sick, women, children, the broken. This, this life of Jesus, it's this supreme example of, of humility. It's like Philippians 2 again. Philippians 2, Paul says, though Christ was in the form of God, he was God himself, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in, in human form, this incarnation, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. cross. Jesus was God in the flesh, yet he didn't cling on to those rights. He emptied himself, and he lived this life of serving others. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself. That's not what Jesus did. It's thinking of yourself less and more about the good of others. That was Jesus. That's a lot of you in, in, in our church. Um, may, hopefully, uh, this describes the people of village. That, like, they're just... They're just like Jesus. They, 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 they're humble. They're, they're confident in who they are in, in God. And therefore, they're just free to, to serve others. They're, they're just free to, to place others before themselves. They're servants. May that describe us. But there's something, um, there's something special, isn't there, about someone truly great showing humility. There's something shocking about that um, that we even experience. Like the greater someone is, the more powerful someone is, the more awesome and breathtaking it is when they show real humility. And there's a story I love about uh, President Obama in 2009 um, on this day where one of the pres president's staffers um, were, was leaving his post. And as is tradition, they're, they're able to invite their family into the Oval Office to, to meet the president and to take a picture with the president. Uh, this is a, a, quite the honor. Um, and, and after that picture was taken, the youngest son of this staffer, he turned to the president and he said, I want to know if your hair is like my hair. What's your, is your hair like my hair? And the president, he bends over and he invites the child to touch it and to see. And the, the, when the child hesitated, the president said, touch it. That's a picture of it. Someone snapped that picture, obviously kind of went around the world viral. And the reason this picture was so fascinating is because this is the most powerful man in the world. 
stooping low and allowing a child to, to rub his head. Because the, the greater someone is, the more powerful someone is, the more kind of awesome and breathtaking it is when they show real humility. That's just a fraction of the humility that you, you find in Jesus. Jesus was no president. He was no emperor. He's the creator of the universe. And nothing is more breathtaking, nothing is more worship-inducing when he stoops low in order to be near us. And, and he doesn't just bend over. He, he comes all the way down. He actually takes on human form, and he says, touch me, feel me. Know that you matter to me. You're not an accident. Know that you are precious to me. You see, in, in Christmas, Christmas is this affirmation of our humanity because Jesus became human. God became human, and he wasn't before. What an affirmation of, of, of our humanity. He becomes human so that we, we can actually know that we have a God who knows how hard this life is. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way, yet without sin. That's the, the humbleness of Jesus' birth and his life. So the big question is, what does it mean for us? Why is it important? In order to fully understand, you actually have to look to the place where you see the culmination of his humility, and that's on the cross. Because you can't, you can't talk about Christmas without talking about Easter, right? You can't talk about the, the Christ coming into the world without talking about the reason that he came into the world. And the Apostle Paul gives this beautiful summary of why Jesus came into the, the world to his letter to Timothy. It's on the screen. Um, it's real profound and beautiful and personal. Paul says to Timothy, I thank him for giving me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's thanking Jesus here because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. So Paul's thanking Christ here for judging him faithful when he wasn't. Notice that? He's judging him faithful, and he immediately says, when I, when I wasn't, I was formerly against God. I, I was formerly a, a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was against Christ and the church. But he goes on and he says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in, in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. How incredible is that? How amazing is that last line? Paul says, I was, I was ignorant. I, I was acting in unbelief. I was a blasphemer. I was against God. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me anyway, and I received mercy. And then in the next verse, verse 15, he, he gives us the reason for Christmas. He says, the, the saying is trustworthy. It's deserving of full acceptance. He's saying, believe this that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That, that, that's why Christ came into the world. This is, this, is why, uh, this is why Christ emptied himself. This is why he became a servant. He became lowly so that he could be with the lonely. He, he, he came into this world to save sinners. 
and he saved sinners through his death on the cross. Luther, he calls this salvation on the cross, what happened, the, this great exchange. I love this. He, he says, on the cross, our sinfulness was actually placed on Jesus, and his righteousness, his holiness was placed onto us. Did we swapsy on the cross? What, what a glorious exchange. What an unfair exchange. And Paul says, that's the gospel message. I was an enemy of Christ, but I received mercy anyway. I, his grace overflowed for me when Christ was born into this world so that he could die for me, so that he could come and pay the penalty for my sin and give me eternal life. So next, next bit. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's Christmas. That, that, that's what Zechariah said last week. Remember Zechariah? He talks about the purpose of this salvation in his song. The, 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 the plan of salvation was this promised one was coming to save his people, but the purpose of it, he says, that we being saved delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So this, this salvation through the death of Jesus on the cross, it wasn't just for your physical deliverance. He, he sets us free so that we can worship and serve him without fear. There, deliverance for a purpose, deliverance so that you can be freely serving him. Isn't that, that's interesting, isn't it, that Zachariah said that? so that I can serve him without fear. There's Paul. He, he's praising God for judging him faithful and appointing him to his service. It's interesting because that's why Jesus came too. He, he came in humility to serve and to save. And we are saved so that we can do the same, so that we can be servants. We are saved so that we can become like our Savior, humble, not, not counting ourselves as great, but actually emptying ourselves to serve the other, to become like Jesus. Isn't that amazing? In our salvation, we're actually freed from having to lift ourselves up. We're actually freed from having to work tirelessly at proving ourselves. We are freed from having to push ourselves to the center always. We are freed to, to serve God, to serve others, just like Jesus did. We are free to go serve and love just like our Savior. That's why it's important for you. Christ came humbly into this world in order to save you, in order to set you free to worship and to serve him without fear. He set you free to become like him in his humility and in his service. And just as we close, I want you to see that that's, that's actually what happened to the shepherds. That, that was their response. So look back in verse 17 in Luke chapter 2. They went and they saw Mary and Joseph and, and Jesus in the manger. And when they, it says in, in verse 17, and when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child, that, that gospel message of good news, of great joy for everyone. They went and they made that known. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured it up in her heart, pondering them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. They, they actually went and they shared this glorious news, that this gospel news. 
The angel said, it's good news for, for all the people. And the shepherds go and they start spreading that news. They, they, they actually go and they start taking an interest in sharing their joy, sharing it with others. That last verse, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. They are now, do you see there, worshiping and serving him without fear. That was the response from those shepherds, and that's what can happen for you as well. May we respond to this wonderful, glorious news with obedience, with worship, and with praise by sharing this with the rest of the world. Um, church, may we... May God help us to see the humility of Christ in his birth and in his life and in his death on the cross. May we be humbled. May we feel loved enough that we become a people of humility ourselves. As individuals, as a church, that we can go out and serve the Lord in love without fear and we can serve others. And God became lowly to be with the lonely. And may the Spirit of God help us to be that kind of church as well. And would you stand with me and we'll pray.